Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 4, the very text you just heard read for us. We're going to be looking at this incredible little parable, a parable only found in the gospel of Mark, not found in Matthew or Luke or John, and we get to focus on it this morning. I'm going to begin with a story from church history I find fascinating. Luke Short was a healthy farmer who lived in colonial New England who had reached his hundredth year. He was a hundred years old, but as yet he had not been converted. He had not trusted in Christ for the salvation of his soul. One afternoon there in colonial New England, he sat in a field and his mind went back over his long life, back to his boyhood years in Dartmouth, England, uh, before he sailed for America. At the age of 15, he heard a sermon preached by the great Puritan preacher, John Flavel, And he was preaching, Flavel was on the text, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. 1 Corinthians 16.22. Flavel had focused on on the horror of dying under God's curse. Eighty-five years later, Luke Short, sitting in that field under a tree, felt the fear of God come on him and repented and trusted in Christ found forgiveness. Now, I wonder what was going on for those 85 years, don't you? 85 years. And I feel that in part, this little parable that we're going to study today addresses that, a secret working of the Spirit of God within the hearts of individuals after they have received the seed of the gospel that eventually produces the harvest of salvation in that person's life, a secret working of God that we cannot understand and we cannot effect, we cannot bring it about, but only God can. That's what the parable is about. Now, in this, I believe that the Lord Jesus is alleviating from us a crushing burden that none of us can bear. Mark chapter 4 is an incredible chapter. It begins with the parable of the seed and the soils, and various soil types and various outcomes. And then he continues to teach other aspects of the spreading of the seed and of the spread of the gospel. Now, at that point, the 12, the apostles, uh, did not know that they were going to be given. They didn't have a full understanding that they would be given the responsibility of the Great Commission. And through them also, we, all of us, every generation of Christians, the responsibility of the Great Commission given in each of the four gospels and also in the book of Acts, that we are to take the gospel and go to the ends of the earth and spread the gospel everywhere and make disciples and and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and, and then teach them to obey everything that Christ has commanded, that we are given that responsibility. But in the midst of that, we must understand our limitations, our limited role. And Jesus would lift from us a crushing burden that we cannot bear. Now, in Matthew 23, he talks about the scribes and Pharisees in many ways, judgmental ways. And one of the first things he says, Jesus says about the scribes and Pharisees, is they lay crushing burdens on people and they are not willing to lift a finger to move them, Matthew 23, 4. In Acts 15, Peter talks about a yoke or a burden that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear crushing burden. Well, what is the burden here? Well, suppose that you believe that the eternal destiny 
of specific people or a specific person was completely up to you. You had to devise a way to win a person or a set of lost people. You had to pick the locks of their personalities, of their particular perspectives and their culture, so that their, the, gates, the locked gates of their hearts would swing open to Christ. You had to figure that out. And that if you failed, they would spend eternity in hell, wailing and gnashing their teeth, crying in agony, ultimately because you failed to deliver the gospel, the perfect work of Christ, you failed to deliver it to them and find a way to win them to Christ. That, I tell you, is a crushing burden that no one can bear. Getting more specific, imagine if the Lord pointed to some co-worker or, or a neighbor or a group of neighbors or for a missionary, let's say, an unreached people group assigned to you. You're the only missionary unit working on that unreached people group. Or a, a, a massive city in Asia, 20 million people. And the Lord were to say to you, their eternal destiny depends on you finding a way to actually bring them to Christ. I have done my part, shed my blood, now it's up to you to do your part. Well, if that doesn't crush your spirit, I don't know what would. Uh, but perhaps just as bad would be somebody who says, no, I can do that. Rise to the occasion, and you do find a way, and you do bring in someone to Christ. And then you arrogantly boast as though somehow you would achieve some great thing. That you are in some way just as responsible for their salvation as Jesus was. Oh, that would be insufferable to listen to that for all eternity up in heaven. So both sides are bad. As with any faithless self-reliance, it brings you to either despair or arrogance, depending on whether you think you can meet the challenge. Despair or arrogance. To cut all of that off, Jesus gives us this little parable. This beautiful little parable. It's extremely humbling, actually, but it's also incredibly encouraging if you look at it properly. Listen to the words again. Verse 26, Mark 4. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed in the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. All right, so a kind of a simple restatement of the parable. As evangelists, as spreaders of the word of God, as farmers of the gospel, we have a limited role. We scatter the seed on the ground. Then we do nothing else within this parable. We cannot give life. Life comes apart from anything we possibly can do. Whether we are awake or asleep, the Word of God does it all. All by itself, the soil produces grain. But we, who have scattered the seed, have no idea how it happens. It has nothing to do with our power or our knowledge. It is God alone that gives life, God alone that gives spiritual growth. We get to scatter the seed and then we get to go to bed and sleep. 
God does everything else. What really matters? God gives life. We cannot. Now, God's reason, it seems to me, for all of this is very plain. That He alone gets the glory for the salvation of souls. That He alone takes responsibility for the condemnation of souls. God is everything. He's absolutely sovereign in salvation. As 1 Corinthians 1.31 says, As it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We are humbled by this. We're also greatly encouraged as well. So this morning, we're going to talk about what we gospel farmers can do and what we cannot do. And then I'm just going to go over the same thing again and just intensify it and speak about what we gospel farmers must do and what we must not do. All right, so let's begin with what gospel farmers can do. Now, one of the key interpretation principles for me for this parable is the insight that the one who sows the seed here is not Christ. It's not Jesus here. Now, it is true in the parable of the wheat and the tares, the wheat and the weeds, it is Jesus. The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. That's Matthew 13, 37. But here, this man who sowed knows nothing about how the seed grows. Friends, that's not Jesus. Jesus knows everything about how the seed grows. But this man doesn't know anything about it. And he can do nothing about it. He cannot make it grow. And he sleeps. Again, this is not Jesus here. All right? So, gospel farmer is anyone who scatters the word. So, what can ordinary gospel farmers like you and me do? First, they can scatter the seed of the word. Look at verse 26. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like, a man scatters seed in the ground. Now, Jesus began most of his parables with this kind of introduction. Like, the kingdom of heaven is like, or this is what the kingdom of God is like, something like that. What does that mean? Well, the kingdom of heaven in Matthew, the kingdom of God in Mark and Luke, same thing, is the spiritual domain where God rules over subjects who are delighted to have him ruling over them. And we enter the kingdom of God by repentance and faith in Christ. That's what the kingdom of God is like. And when he's telling parables, he's saying, this is how the king does his business. This is how the kingdom works. This is an aspect of the way that the king does his work in his kingdom. That's how the parables work. So, he begins by saying, a man scatters seed on the ground. Now, we already talked about the seed in the soils. The seed is the word of God. Uh, more specifically, especially the gospel. Could be any teaching from scripture, but I think especially we want to focus on the gospel as the pinnacle of scripture teaching. So, the seed is the Word of God. Uh, there is almost nothing said about the person who scatters the seed. It could be a man, could be a woman, uh, could be a boy, could be a girl. doesn't matter. It's not really addressed. He or she is unremarkable. There's nothing special about this person at all. And the role is simple. Scatter the seed on the ground. Uh, there's no plowing mentioned. There's no preparation of the soil here. There's no building of a protective wall or a watchtower or a wine press or any of that equipment. Those are mentioned in other parables, not here. Simply put, this sower speaks the word of God to another human being. They just speak the gospel to another person. 
So it could be a pastor preaching a, a sermon like I am right now, or it could be a neighbor speaking the gospel to another neighbor, neighbor over tea, some hospitality and a chance to share the gospel. It could be a passenger sitting next to another passenger on a plane and talking about the gospel. It could be a co-worker with another co-worker at a coffee break speaking the gospel. It could be a mother speaking the gospel to her growing children in, in their home. Gospel workers can do this as much as they like. And I will exhort you at the end of the sermon to do it more than you've ever done it before. But Jesus makes very little of the process. There's nothing simpler than scattering seed on the ground. So picture yourself within the parable. You're walking through the field. You have a bag slung across crosswise on your chest and a bag of seed on your hip. And you reach in and you pull a, a fistful of seed and you just scatter it. I mean, if you have any intelligence, you're going to go in an organized pattern through the field. You don't want to dump it all in one area. That wouldn't take long, but that would be pretty stupid. So there'd be an intelligence moving through, but you're just reaching in, throwing seed, reaching in, scattering seed. You do it again and again. All right? So you go through that, and you scatter the seed, and then you've sown the entire field. So this is the first thing that the parable says that we gospel farmers can do. Now, the next it says that gospel farmers can harvest the crop. Verse 29, and this for me is a very important key to this, this parable, so listen carefully here. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. So the same one that scattered the seed in the parable does the harvesting too. When the grain is ripe, it is ready to be harvested. Well, what is that harvest? Now, that's the important question here. What is the harvest? It's one of two possibilities. The growth and development of the seed could be the entire Christian life, including all of the fruitfulness that comes through that entire life, like in the parable of the seed and the soils, and the 30, 60, 100 times what was sown, that kind of thing. Full life, full fruit, full growth, whatever. But if that's true, what is the harvest? Well, that would be death or the second coming. Can I just tell you simply, you're not going to do that? You're not the grim reaper, dear friend. You don't have any role in ending someone else's life. You're not the Lord coming in the clouds. You're not that person. So the harvest must be something else, and it's the other option. And that is the bringing of a person to an initial clear profession of faith in Christ. They are now a Christian. They've come into the kingdom. Now, this is the exact kind of language that Jesus uses in John chapter 4. You remember the conversation he had with the Samaritan woman. Remember that? And he's talking with her, and they have an incredible conversation, just the two of them. And she finally concludes that Jesus is the Messiah they've been waiting for for all those centuries. She, he's the one. So she leaves her water jar there and runs into the Samaritan village. And she rouses all of her fellow villagers to come out and see Jesus. Come out and see this man that I've been talking to who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Christ? And she is effective in bringing them all out. And so they're en route. Meanwhile, the disciples who were in the Samaritan village had been buying lunch to go. All right? So they brought lunch to go out to Jesus. 
and they said, uh, it's time to eat. And Jesus said, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Oh, could somebody have brought him lunch? What's going on in the minds of the disciples? All right? They're in this whole Samaritan village with a bunch of lost people, and all they do is buy food. Jesus, I think, effectively rebukes him. I have food to eat you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then comes the harvest? I tell you, lift up your fields and look at them. They are white for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have and reaped the benefit of their labor. So we have a reaping we can do in this life. And what is that reaping? It is to, to be present when that person crosses over from death to life. Under all that God, man, Christ response, you've done all that work and, and they're at the response and you're, and you're pleading with them to repent and believe and they do. And they become Christians and you get to do the reaping in that sense. And the Samaritan said in John 4, talking to uh, this woman, it says, because of Jesus' words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. We have now heard for ourselves, and we know, we know that this man is the Savior of the world. They have been reaped. They've been reaped. They've been brought into the, into the barn spiritually. They are Christians. Now, who did the reaping that day? Jesus did, in that sense. Uh, But we have the possibility of doing some reaping. Don't you want to do that? Wouldn't you love to be part of that reaping? When you confirm that a person who has heard the word of the gospel, the word of Christ, and has believed it, And as it says in John 5, 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. When you're there watching them cross over and they get to the other side and like, did I make it? Am I on the other side? You get to say, you are. You are now alive. Your sins are forgiven. Hallelujah, you are a Christian. You get to say that. As it says in John 21, if you forgive anyone, or John 20, if you forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. That's messenger language. We're not the God of all the world, but we get to declare to people, you are forgiven. You're a Christian. Welcome to the kingdom of God. That's the reaping. And then soon after that, I think as Christians, we would uh, call for water baptism, make disciples, baptize them and teach them to obey. So that would be part of confirming the reaping. As it says in Acts 2, 40 and 41, with many other words he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. That's Peter on the day of Pentecost. So he's warning them, pleading with them, and 3,000 accepted his message and were baptized and became members of the church. So that's the reaping. All right, so gospel farmers can scatter the seed of the word and they can reap. They can bring in the harvest. What else can they do? Well, they can sleep and they can get up. It's like, do we really have permission to sleep? You do. Well, I mean, that's what this guy in the parable does. After he scattered the seed, he went to bed. Look at verse 27. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. 
In other words, they can live their ordinary lives. They can go about their business. They can lie down knowing they've done their job and not be panicked about the outcome. The weight of their eternity does not rest on them. They can rest confidently. And they can wake up and they can get up and make breakfast and go about their work. And maybe they'll do more seed sowing that next day. But the secret growth belongs to God. All right, so that's what the gospel farmers can do. What gospel farmers cannot do? Well, they cannot give life. They cannot give growth. Look at verse 27, 28. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. Friends, life itself may be the greatest mystery in this physical world. The most skilled farmer has no idea how the apparently lifeless seed germinates. Puts forth the the, the first shoot in the soil, the root. He doesn't have any idea how that happens. Even the most brilliant botanist or a biologist who has spent hundreds, thousands of hours studying the germination of seeds and can describe with interesting terminology step by step what happens. Doesn't know. Really. Because life is a mystery. It's a mystery of life. So we cannot do that. We cannot create life. Only God can do that. So the farmer, once he's scattered the seed all over the field, takes off the bag, he hangs it up in his barn, he washes up and eats dinner with his wife and kids. Goes to bed, wakes up the next morning, and he knows enough to leave the seed alone because there's nothing he can do to make the seeds grow, to germinate, to do all the amazing things that seeds do in the ground. And he can't give that initial life, he can't make it grow. Like imagine he, he goes out like a, a week later or however long later, and there's all these little shiny green things coming up row upon row, right? And he's like, come on. Come on, grow. And he gets down and starts tugging on it. Oh, leave it alone. (laughs) Leave it alone. You can't make it grow. He can do nothing. The man can do nothing. He knows nothing. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. So, The farmer's power and skill contribute nothing to the life. He does not understand the process. He does not know how. The soil does everything. Look at verse 28. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. The Greek word translated all by itself is automate. That should sound like an English word to you. Automatic. It's automatic. Or by itself. The same word is used in Acts 12.10. When Peter is rescued miraculously from prison and from being killed. And uh, Acts 12.10, they passed through the first and second guards and they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them automate, automatically, just by itself. And they went through it. So the use by Jesus here means the farmer contributes nothing to the life and growth of the seed. The soil seems to do it by itself. That's actually not true. We know the real truth is God gives the growth. God gives the growth. Here is a humbling parallel passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 and 7. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the Corinthian church. I planted the seed. Apollos watered. But God made it grow. 
So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. What does it mean if we are not anything? It means we are nothing. God is everything. That's humbling, isn't it? But it's also encouraging. God makes things grow. God is everything. So let's connect this to gospel work. Romans 1.16 says, The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. But that's only true if God adds the secret work of the Spirit to those who hear it. You know it's true. It's not all by itself automatic. Many people hear the gospel and never repent and believe. But it's when God adds the second secret work of the Spirit within the heart of the individual that life comes. Now, how does that happen? Well, let's talk about it a little bit. If the harvest is the person's come to Christ, and if the planting of the seed is their first hearing of the gospel, that's the process between those two moments. That's very interesting. Look what it says, verse 28. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head, then that harvest comes, right? That must mean that there are unconverted elect people who have heard the word, have not yet trusted in Christ, and stuff's going on inside them. They're thinking about it. I planted the seed of Paul's what watered. There's things going on in the secret recesses of their heart, recesses of their heart, like what? Conviction of sin starts to grow. Fear of hell starts to grow. A yearning for heaven starts to grow. Most importantly, the beauty of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ, death on the cross, and his resurrection starts to grow. Christ becomes more and more meaningful, but the person's still not yet converted. That, that sense of the beauty and a yearning for heaven and, and a rising terror of the judgment of God, all of that part of it. There are secret inducements, secret persuasions coming to the mind Maybe even some sleepless nights. Now to back this up, there's a lot of verses I could use, but you remember the third telling of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus in the book of Acts adds a piece of information the other two didn't give us. And that's where you remember the light strikes Saul of Tarsus to the ground and from heaven comes a voice, Acts 26, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then he says, this is Jesus, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Oh, that's interesting. What are goads? They are sharpened stakes put behind a beast of burden that's yoked up and pulling a plow, let's say, to keep it from kicking back at the master because it gets, they're sharp and, they, and the animal learns not to do that. And Saul, pre-conversion Saul, was kicking against the goads. What are they? Secret inducements, persuasions, maybe some of the doctrine of Stephen how Stephen died, how his face looked like the face of an angel, and Saul was there giving consent to his death, but one preacher said Stephen's doctrine, his persuasions, his sermon, and his manner of death put a ticking time bomb inside the mind of Saul of Tarsus that went off on the road to Damascus in a good way, good time bomb, all right, bringing him to salvation. So that's the stock the head, the full kernel. There's a process going on inside them. And yet, amazingly, they're still dead in their transgressions and sins, even while they live. 
So it's just not that simple. There are things that are going on inside that will eventually lead them to faith in Christ. And we can't do it. We cannot affect that conversion. Like it says in John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children that were born not of the blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but born of God. So that not, not, not means you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it. Only God can do it. Also, a few chapters later in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, verses 6 through 8. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. But it's interesting, he's telling those words to an unconverted man. To the end, he would be converted. There's internal truth and processes going on. So the Spirit moves wherever he chooses. People scatter the seed of the Word, but it is the Spirit that gives life. Two people could be sitting side by side, hearing the same message. One is converted and the other is not. There is nothing the evangelist can do to make it happen. He must simply deliver the Word and leave the rest to the secret inner working of the Spirit of God. All right, what gospel farmers must do? Well, we must diligently, diligently scatter the seed. Though the parable is meant to humble us and put us in our place, to give all praise and glory to God for all spiritual life and growth, yet we have a vital role to play. We must scatter the seed. We must preach the gospel to lost people. We must do this more than we have ever done it before. Some have one role, some have another. I'm called on to preach in this manner. Most people aren't. But others can share in the workplace, in the neighborhood, at family gatherings, at supermarkets, at your kids' little league games, at the doctor's office, at coffee shops. We, we have the ability to do this. We have the calling to do this. What some call broadcast Seed sowing. Broadcast seed sowing. What does that mean? Scattering it widely. Lots of seed. I have a broadcast seed sower in my crawl space. I bring it out at certain times to scatter seed on my lawn. I mean, you've seen these things before. You put it in, it's got a little hopper, and you walk, and it just spews them everywhere. So it saves me from having doing this, like the guy in the parable, right? Just spewing the seed everywhere. So that's what I mean. I don't mean when I say broadcast using radio or the internet or, you know, social media. You can do all that, but that's not what I mean now. I mean lots and lots and lots of gospel encounters, not one or two. That it actually would be an odd day in which you don't say something to a lost person about Christ. Wouldn't you love to get to that point where you're just consistently saying something about Christ? Ask the Lord to work it in you. We must do this. For God has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.20. As though God himself were making his appeal through us. We, we implore you, we beg you, be reconciled to God. Can you imagine saying that to someone this week? I'm an ambassador of heaven. I want you to know Christ. Find the best words, but we are called on for this role. More than ever before. Charles Spurgeon, talking about this, said this. 
He said, the seed should be sown often, sow again and again, for many are the foes of the wheat. And if you repeat not your sowing, you may never see a harvest. If you like have this one seed and you're just once a week, it's like, there it is. I did my job. That's not it. He says, sow and sow and sow, lots. No tribe of man, no peculiar constitution of the human mind may be neglected by us. Not the highly educated or the uneducated, not the rich or the poor. There's no one we can leave out. And then Spurgeon said this, whenever Captain Cook, the celebrated explorer, landed in whatever part of the earth it might be, he took with him a little packet of English seeds, and he was observed to scatter them in suitable places. He would leave the boat and wander up from the shore, go a little inland, He said nothing to anybody but quietly scattered English seeds wherever he went so that he belted the world with flowers and herbs of his native land. So imitate him wherever you go. Sow spiritual seed in every place that your foot shall tread upon. Now some of you before long will be at holiday, that's vacation, at the seaside. I guess this was right before the summer in England. I don't know. Some of you before long will be on holiday at the seaside or amidst the mountains of Switzerland. If that's you, talk to me. At least show me the pictures when you get back. The mountains of Switzerland or some other regions of the earth in search of the variety and beauty of the world. Carry the heavenly seeds with you and be not satisfied unless in every place you let fall a grain or two that may bring forth fruit unto your God. So we can... We must scatter seed, broadcast seed. Secondly, we must expect God for results. Expect God to bring in a harvest. In the parable, the man sleeps peacefully knowing he's going to have a harvest. He doesn't think, gee, I hope we have a harvest. No, I mean, he's a farmer. His family depends on it. But he's been a farmer for many years. He's expecting a harvest. Spurgeon said this, I fear that many Christians work without faith. If you have a garden or a field and you sow seed in it, you would be very greatly surprised and grieved if it did not come up at all. But many Christian people seem quite content to work on, and they never reckon upon results so much as to look for it expectantly. This is a pitiful kind of working, pulling up empty buckets year after year. Surely I must either see a result for my labor and be glad, or else failing to see it, I must be ready to break my heart. We ought to expect results. If we had expected more, we should have seen more. But a lack of expectation has been a great cause of failure in God's works, workers. I think they go together. If you really expect a harvest, you're going to seed, sow more seed. If you really don't expect a harvest, you're not going to sow much. All right. What gospel farmers must never do. We covered this a few weeks ago, but I'm going to say it again. We must never re-engineer the seed if it doesn't give the, the harvest we think it should give. That's not for us to do. If we take the seed of the gospel and do a feedback loop with audience reaction, and we start taking out offensive elements like the blood, the atoning blood, or the exclusivity of Christ, the need for repentance and faith in Jesus, the law with its moral stipulations condemning us apart from the work of Christ to hell. If we take out things like that and make the, make the message more popular, if we re-engineer the seed and make a man-made gospel, Paul tells us in Galatians, that is no gospel at all. And it would be better for you to be condemned 
than to preach a man-made gospel. We must never re-engineer the seed. And secondly, we must not question the, uh, the approach. I'm not saying that we can't do better, make certain that we didn't give offense where we should. I'm not saying that, but I mean the general approach of evangelism. Some people think to uh, come up with techniques, like within a, a church service, if you get the lighting right and the music right and the whole experience right and the architecture right and all that, you set up all that things, you can get the response. Like they're engineering the whole thing. Or the prosperity gospel that seeks to bribe converts. We don't have enough money in our budget to bribe converts here in the Raleigh-Durham area. $500 for each convert. It's not just that. They won't be genuine converts. They were called rice bowl Christians in other ages. They're coming for different reasons. That's the prosperity gospel. That's not the true gospel. We're not called on to do that. We must never re-engineer the gospel message or question the basic simple approach of evangelism. Thirdly, we must not sleep the sleep of the lazy. We must not sleep the sleep of the lazy. Yes, this man sleeps after he has done his work. After he's done his work. There is a confident, holy sleep that we can take when we have done the work God's called on us to do. As Ecclesiastes 5.12 says, the sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much. All right. But there is the sleep of the gospel sluggard in which we are asleep to the perishing all around us, sinfully asleep to their condition. As it says in Proverbs 10.5, he who gathers crops in summer is a wise son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. So let's not sleep during the harvest. Now is the harvest time. All right, let me make a final appeal and then we'll be done. Really, the whole sermon's been an appeal. The whole sermon's been an appeal. But I must conclude by appealing directly to you who came to church this morning lost. Came to church this morning knowing yourself to be unconverted. You've heard the gospel multiple times today. Jason put it in his prayer right straight through, and so I didn't need to do any more. There it was. A to Z, the gospel. You've heard it. Wes had the gospel, a simple summary of the gospel, and when he introduced one of the songs. The gospel is simple and straightforward. The God of heaven is king of all the earth, created all things, and gives us laws by which we are to govern our life. We have broken those laws. We have violated his commands. We are sinners, and we cannot save ourselves. So God sent his son, who lived a sinless life, died in our place under the wrath of God. The punishment we deserve was laid on him, He died for us, and he was risen from the dead on the third day. And if we repent and believe in him, we'll be forgiven. You've heard it. Now, the danger of me giving you that Luke Short story, remember that guy that waited 85 years to be converted? You don't know that you have 85 days or 85 minutes. You don't know how much longer you have. While there's time, if today you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. And you Christians who came in here, and you are Christians, and you know that you're Christians, I'm just going to ask you, what are your habits of seed sowing? Are you scattering seed or not? And if not, ask the Lord to transform you. Ask the Lord to give you opportunities to, to reach your hand into the bag and start scattering. Start sowing seed. I want to say a final word to Christian parents. This is a fascinating parable for Christian parents. 
You sowed the seed in your kids a long time ago, and now something's going on inside them. And it's mysterious, isn't it? The stalk is growing up. And then, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. At some point, you get the privilege of harvesting. I don't know when that is. Might be very young, might be a little bit older. But that secret working of the gospel going on, trust in that. Pray for God to do that working. And then go to sleep at night. It's not up to you to save your kids. Something only God can do. So saturate them with the gospel, pray for them, and then let God do that secret work in their hearts. Close with me in prayer. Father, thank you for the time we've had in your word today. Thank you for this incredible parable. How beautiful it is. How insightful. Whereas the parable of the seed and the soils talked about all of the different outcomes and the whole big picture, this focused on one individual plant. And I thank you for what we learned today, that we don't know how that growth comes. It, it comes no matter what we do after we've sown the seed. Lord, thank you for humbling us, but also thank you for encouraging us that if we are faithful and if we scatter the seed, you're going to do this incredible work. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hi, this is Andy Davis. I hope that you've enjoyed this sermon. For more of my resources, please go to twojourneys.org. And may the Lord Jesus Christ bless you as you continue to serve him.